I'm always interested this time of year what the stores tell us about our fathers. They tell us what our fathers want for a gift. And I'm always interested what, what those little gift tables look like in the store. Barnes & Noble has a store out. The sign says, Perfect for Dad. Now see if any of these titles sound like the ones you want, gentlemen. Okay? Play Better Golf. Analogy of Baseball. Oh, Anthology of Baseball. Portraits of Civil War. You're getting close. Combat Aircraft. Somebody wants that one? Ah. Okay, we need some pastoral counseling there. Classic and collectible trucks. World of Science. The Encyclopedia of Trout Flies. Changing Channels, published by TV Guide. Popular Science Power Tools. Tom Clancy novels. The Great Railway Journey. The American Semi-Truck. There's a good one. The Redneck Joke Book. I didn't pick that. It was on the table. And this one was obviously misfiled. I'm not sure how it ended up on the table for fathers. The title of the book, How to Argue and Win Every Time. <laughs> right out there for your buying pleasure. My mother-in-law called this week. She's cleaning in the house, packing for a move, and she found a Father's Day card that's 35 years old, written by her son, my husband, when he was about eight or nine. And she found it in a drawer tucked away, and it... It only had three sentences on the card written by the little hand of the eight-year-old that said, Dear Father, I will try to be obedient. I will try to obey. I will try to do better. Somehow those lines resonate when we think of parent child father child relationships don't they a little bit the father is the one who wants us to obey and be, be obedient i wonder sometimes in the human experience if it's that we look in the bible and see god the father who wants us to obey be obedient do better try harder it certainly feels that way as we've been studying the Ten Commandments together for the past few weeks. It is, in fact, God who says, I'm the Lord your God. I gave you these commandments. Now obey them. Take them seriously. So maybe we get this idea from God the Father, obeying. We're on commandment number six today. This is the shortest commandment we've come to thus far. It's only four words. It's concise. It's direct. It's unequivocal. It's specific. Just don't do this thing. It reads very simply. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2 and verse 13. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, who brought you out of the land or the house of slavery. Therefore, verse 13, the sixth commandment, thou shall not murder. Finally, when I don't break... Yeah, as far as I know, I don't think I've killed anyone. So I say we can sit this sermon out. Yeah. Hey, what was Johnny getting so bent out of shape for this morning? Oh, she's just being her usual nutcase self. She's all upset because I didn't go to her birthday party last night. You didn't go either? I called her and told her I had the stomach flu. Yeah, I know. She told me. She knows you're lying, by the way. 
I couldn't help it. How could I go over to her house after all she's done? She still refused to admit she owes me money. Yeah, last month I loaned her a few CDs, and last week I asked for them back. She now says I never loaned them to her. What an idiot! She's stupid. Let's kill her. I think we'd get in trouble for that. Yeah, I think it's illegal in this state. Bummer. We can still focus on making her life miserable. Good point. I think we should make sure everyone else knows she's a lying cheat and a crook. We don't want others getting tangled up with her. It's the Christian thing to do. Definitely. So, what was the pastor preaching about again? The sixth commandment: Do not murder. Right. The only one I don't break. Yeah, me either. The only one you don't break either. Thou shall not kill. Thou shall not murder. Depending upon what translation of the Bible you read, if you read King James or the Revised Standard Version, you see the word kill. Most every other translation says murder. And for years, this has brought interest to the conversation in Christian circles because surely there's a difference between murder and killing. And surely we see that the word is murder in Hebrew. So that must mean intentional, premeditated, driven manslaughter is what you shouldn't do. But killing is a different word. So war and self-defense and accidental murder or, or killing, death, must be allowable. I wish the Bible were that clear for us. I wish the compartmentalizing happened that nicely and neatly, but you find the words for kill and murder interchanged. In fact, the word for murder, that would be the one we're studying today, don't take someone's life, is also used later in Numbers for, for capital punishment. When God has someone killed, thou shalt not murder. Whether we see killing or murder or whether we see one of the other dozens of words we could use for taking life, smote, stricken, strike down, destroy, slay, there's just an awful lot of murder and killing happening in our Old Testament, whether it's premeditated or not, where, whether it's an accidental or intentional murder, we quickly find that in the biblical account, these get confused. And intertwined. So it's not as easy to say, well, we can kill, but we can't murder. It's not that easy. And remember, in your Bible, in my Bible, death is prescribed as a punishment for the Hebrews, isn't it? You'll be put to death if you curse your parents, if you strike your parents. You'll be put to death if you uh, commit adultery, if you engage in witchcraft, if you break the Sabbath. You could be put to death in our Old Testaments. So it's quite interesting that as soon as all those specifications are laid out for the punishments, death, almost as soon the human beings move to sort of, well, well, soften the blow. Cities of refuge are built. You've heard about those in the Bible, a place where someone could go who has committed a crime, who's waiting for their punishment, and they can't be killed and put to death if they're in a city of refuge. And, and then there's even more sort of teasing apart. What, what should we do? I know if someone confesses that they killed or murdered, we don't have to put them to death. 
This is sort of the expansion of the understanding of this commandment. If they confess, they won't have to be put to death. If it's just circumstantial evidence, that doesn't count for a murder. If they warned the person they were going to attack and that person didn't heed the warning, then you can't be held responsible. Isn't that a great one? And it's not murder or killing unless there are two witnesses who are willing to come and testify that they saw it happen. And furthermore, those two witnesses need to be willing to put you to death. It's almost as if as soon as the death conversation comes up with the Hebrews, you can see them moving, backing out of it, almost looking for other alternatives as if to say, but what else could we do besides have to kill people? So the command isn't that concise. It isn't that simple. It isn't wrapped up nice and neat for us. Legal killing narrows and narrows and narrows in our scripture, which makes it interesting for us today as Christians in the world when we want to use our Bibles to have conversations about war and euthanasia and what to do about suicide and what to do about capital punishment. It isn't as easy as pointing to the sixth commandment or pointing to one particular case or the other in our Old Testament because the human experience is complex. And remember what we've said here before. We never use our Bibles to close a conversation. We use it to open them up. Do you understand the difference? Well, then what could we say about the Sixth Commandment? Most commentators, many commentators agree that at the core of this commandment is the idea of cherishing life, of promoting life, of realizing that life is sacred. Life is sanctified by God. So, so the command, while it doesn't answer every specific question, situation, it does call us to sort of live above and respect life. One author, Earl Palmer, says it this way, it's, an, it's a holy interruption to the way we might otherwise live, where people all around us aren't paying attention to life. We're called to honor life, to cherish life, to promote life, a holy interruption. I like that phrase. I'm going to come back to it. For the children of Israel, they need a holy interruption because they're now this nomadic, barbaric tribe wandering through the desert. And this God has said to them, you're not going to kill. Here's a holy interruption to the way you do life. It doesn't matter that Moses killed in Egypt. You're not going to kill. It doesn't matter that the Egyptians kill. You're not going to kill. It doesn't matter that in all the pagan ritual worship sacrifices, bloodshed is required. You're not going to kill. It doesn't matter that almost every people group you're going to run into in the desert kill as a way of life. You're not going to kill. It doesn't matter that killing is almost the easiest way to solve any problem. You're not going to kill. And if you're an Israelite... And if you happen to like Monty Python, I imagine a Monty Python scene right now. The Israelites sort of scratching their head. Ah, did he say we can't kill? Yeah. You can't kill because why? Remember commandments 1, 2, and 3? The core there. You're my chosen one. You're my children. I gave you my image. I put it on you. I gave you my name. I breathed life into you. That's not only a gift, but it comes with a responsibility. Now, wherever you see a human being, you see me. You see sacred life. Your job is not to extinguish that life, but to cherish that life, to build it up. Because all human beings that you see, starting with you, you Israelites, you're all sacred. You all bear my image. Thou shall not kill would be, would be as if to take 
part of the image of God out of the world. Remember a few times I've referred to the saying the Jewish rabbis would use in the time of Jesus and beyond when a rabbi would walk through the streets and and announce, make way for the image of God as humans walked down the street. This is why you're not going to kill. You're wedded to me. You're in the image of God. It's very beautiful language. It's a very beautiful reality. Right here is where I think I lost some people first service. A little girl came up to me after church first service. She said to me, I like this sermon, but I decided to read my Bible instead. (laughs) I love it. I love when people can be that honest. So could you stay with me right here? I'm going to try and do better. There are two further aspects of the commandment I'd like to discuss this morning. We could talk about so many things when it comes to the sixth commandment. One, I think we shouldn't overlook. What do you do with this God behind the sixth commandment who says thou shalt not kill or murder? But by the way, right before he gave the commandments, the children of Israel were all gathered at the base of Mount Sinai where they had to wash themselves and put on their robes and prepare to hear the word of the Lord. And Moses was told, make sure you put a boundary around the the mountain and that no one touch the base of the mountain. Otherwise, they shall be put to death. Then the commandments are given. Move over to Exodus chapter 21, and now the code, the community code for how to live is given. And you can do just about anything, anything on this list that you're not supposed to do. The punishment is death. What do you make of this God who says, thou shalt not kill? But then he says, by the way, if you decide to attack someone, kidnap someone, curse at someone, you're going to be put to death. What are you going to do with that God? The God who's able to kill Uzzah for stumbling and tripping and touching the ark accidentally. The God who's able to unleash poisonous snakes on people so they bite them and that they die. What are you going to do with this God who can swallow up people out of the ground, right? But out of the ground opening up, who can kill troops of 10 and 20 and 30,000. What do you do with a God who sends fire and a storm and even a flood? This God told Noah, flesh needs to be removed from this earth. What do you do do with that God? Now, maybe you already have this worked out in your mind, and I'm glad that you do. Many non-Christians in our world stop right here. Because they see a bloodthirsty, vindictive God in the Old Testament. And some of our strongest critics in the world who read our Bible say, tell me about this God who says thou shalt not kill, but then does all of this. It's as if God is screaming, don't scream. And he's screaming. And why would God do that? Many people look at this God and have one of three responses. God, I don't like you. God, I'm afraid of you. God, I don't know what to do with you. I'm not presenting the problem. I'm just reading the text. And out of the text, this just spills. One has to deal with it. Now, some people would just prefer not to. They haven't figured out. And and we deal with it in in a variety of creative ways. I'm going to suggest to you that it's smarter to think about it than to avoid it. My husband gave me this little pin a while back. I think, therefore, I'm dangerous. 
He spots my life with good stuff like this. This is a time to think when you have your Bible open. To not think, to close it up, to ignore the Old Testament is not to be living in the light that I think God has in mind, not to be using our mind. You think when you read these two Testaments together, what happens? And by the way, it is a little bit dangerous. I would suggest this morning that, first of all, God can handle honest inquiry. It's okay if I say to God, why are you screaming at the people and telling them not to scream? It's okay if I say, I don't like this very much. I don't think I like you very much in these passages. It's all right if I'm honest and confess to God like that. God can handle that. I don't have these things all figured out. And I always notice that if I'm honest to God in my confession and I pay attention to the spirit that bubbles inside of me and then I dig and I search and I wrestle Israel, the nation of Israel means to wrestle with God, that when I do that, I come out in a better place. Don't be afraid to think. Don't be afraid that it's too dangerous and you shouldn't do it. What happens if you think about this God in the Old Testament where you have these two Testaments that are sitting side by side? I imagine if God could answer back, if I could shout out and say, what are you doing screaming at the people? It doesn't make sense to me that that God might answer back. It doesn't make sense to me either. Look at here. I put you people in Eden and I gave you everything you could imagine. Life was perfect and good. I gave you myself. All was well. What did you people do? It makes no sense to me. What is interesting is that in our Bibles, the first words are not commandments, are they? The commandments don't come in for more than 10, 20 generations. The first words in the Bible are, I am the Lord, I am God. In the beginning was God and God created and chapters of everything beautiful. God the commander and the arbitrator comes in much later when life has gone wrong. So if we work backwards from Sinai and the Red Sea and Egypt and we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4 after Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden and now we have these two brothers who just love each other, Cain and Abel, and what happens? Murder. Someone has said, many scholars have said too, interesting exercises that in all of these Ten Commandments, we see the mistakes of the earliest Bible characters. They have lived them out over and over again long before we get those Ten Commandments. So if God could answer back, he might say to me this morning, what's wrong with you people? I don't get it either. What I do see is that God works with whatever he has, wherever this God is. And and that's why we can't read our perspectives or even the New Testament perspectives back into the Old Testament. Because God's just in the desert with these people. And when he says to Abraham, get your firstborn and yes, kill him. It's not because God loves to kill. It's because where Abraham lives, that's one of the highest honors you can pay the deity to bring your firstborn child. But God didn't let the murder happen, did God? God steps in and provides the sacrifice. And so you see baby steps, baby steps as you work your way through the Old Testament. And while it doesn't resolve all of my questions, it does help me see that God goes from good to better to best as he follows this creation. Does does that make sense? 
Does that help us some? We do eventually need to move to the New Testament in Jesus, and that's the second aspect of the conversation. What does Jesus have to say about this? Jesus isn't the first person to expand this commandment to to something quite inclusive. In fact, already in Leviticus, the 5th century B.C., there's already one author who says, by the way, if you have hatred in your heart, you're, you're killing. Isn't that interesting? And then by the time we get to Jesus in the New Testament, Jesus says something similar. I'm going to read that passage in a moment, but I just want to remember the woman in John chapter 8 who's caught or accused of participating in adultery, right? And she's brought out to the town square. Now, she's Jewish, and what does the law prescribe for someone like her in the Old Testament times? She's to be put to death. And Jesus says, let the sinless one cast the first stone, which helps us understand what Jesus does to the idea of killing and murder. But even more, go to Matthew chapter 5 and 21. After the Beatitudes, when Jesus says, you've heard it said, Matthew chapter 5:21 You've heard it said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment, but I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, "Raka," is answerable to the Sanhedrin. Anyone who says, "You fool," will be in the danger of the fire of hell. So in two verses Jesus says, "If you harbor anger, if you insult, If you slander someone's character, you have violated the sixth commandment. Now keep reading, verse 23. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift in the altar. That is, run out of church. Don't even stay for worship. Leave your offering. This is a pretty dangerous passage, by the way. Can you imagine? Don't even give your offering. I don't need your offering. I need you to leave quickly, the passage says. Verse 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. It is an expansion of the commandment, and we find out that the emotions that lead to the anger, that lead us to the actions, Jesus wants to get to the heart of that. He wants to get to the heart of that at home. He wants to get to the heart of that in the church. That's what Jesus means when he says, if you have this in your heart, it's, that's the sixth commandment violation right there. The most basic human instincts. We need a holy interruption when that happens. When it happens in our home and there's anger that's unresolved, we we need a holy interruption. It it happens in my home sometimes. I came home from work a few weeks ago. I don't know what your thing is. You all have your stuff when you get home the way you act out. I, I know you all have it. Come on now. My thing is when I walk in the door and if the house is a mess, I just go on a rampage cleaning everything up but i don't just clean it up nicely i have to gripe along the way picking up all this stuff and it just so happened that the last time this happened amanda was home with me and i'm just griping about the messy house and and she screams out from a back room i didn't mess it up all by myself oh i know you didn't but why can't people just put their stuff away and what is the word Pretty soon I looked around and there was no kid. I was yelling at no one. 
I was alone because she's figured out, go upstairs to her bedroom and close the door. I need a holy interruption right there. Those are emotions that lead to anger, that lead us to acting out, which takes life. It doesn't infuse life in my family, does it? It takes life. It draws life out of them. We need it in our families. It amazed me sitting at Mesa Grande Academy a few weeks ago for a week of prayer when I visited the Bible classrooms and and we could talk about anything the kids wanted. One of the days during the week of prayer, we had talked about parents, our relationship with our parents. And in several of these conversations with kids, they, they just sort of poured it out, just vomited up. And why do our parents have to be so intolerant? Why don't they listen to us? Why do they have to yell at us? Why can't they just calm down before they lay into us? And I'm being so bright, I say, you know, just wait till things are calm at home. Don't bring it up when your parents in the heat of the anger. Just let everybody calm down. Write them a note. Oh, yeah, you don't know my parents. It doesn't matter if they calm down. It doesn't matter if I write a note. We need a holy interruption in our homes. A holy interruption says, wait a minute, time out. Something's happening inside of me, and it's causing this, and now I'm acting out, and, and I'm not honoring life right now. And if I don't figure out how to do that in my home, my children won't figure out how to do that in theirs and in their world, will they? This commandment is for home, but it's also for the church and the community. The passage says, don't even give your offering. Just just go. Go quickly and resolve the problem. Wouldn't that be interesting? If we came to church and we called to mind someone we were angry at, someone against whom we've been collecting a debt, keeping track, and we just left during worship, I wonder how many of us would need to leave If we left during worship and took care of it, I I had a woman years ago who was angry at me and she finally made an appointment and said, we need to go to lunch and I'm just going to tell you what's been on my chest. And so we went to eat and she began telling me all my problems. And I looked at my watch. I thought, how long could this take? Really? 20 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour and 50 minutes later, I heard all of my problems. I decided not to interrupt, just to listen. It took years building up to that one hour and 50 minute conversation so she could tell me all of my problems. These are the people that you avoid in church, the people you socially you skirt around. These are the people that you'd rather not have Sabbath lunch with. What if we just dropped things quickly and resolved them? That's what Jesus is suggesting. Now, rather than The model I just gave you with the woman and myself, Pastor Larry told a story in board meeting. I've been thinking about it ever since. He spoke of a man named Pastor Butterfield who bought a piece of property and had a neighbor on the adjacent property, and they were both farming their land. And for some reason, this neighbor didn't like Pastor Butterfield. Maybe he just found out he was a pastor. That happens, you know. Who knows? He doesn't like him. Pastor Butterfield can see the neighbor doesn't like him but what has he done they haven't had any conversation and when they pass by one another the neighbor won't look he won't talk to this man 
He can tell that there's a problem. And Pastor Butterfield finally is so fed up with it. He realizes in Christian love, this isn't right. Something has to be done here. And one day they're on their tractors in the field, moving alongside one another. And Pastor Butterfield stops his tractor, gets off, and puts his body in front of the other man's tractor. And says to him, you come down off your tractor. And the man got down off his tractor And Pastor Butterfield threw his arms around him and said, I don't know what I've done and why you hate me, but I love you. The man said, I don't know why I'm behaving this way. Resolved quickly. Can you imagine who you might need to throw your arms around this week and say, I'm not sure exactly what I've done, but I love you. To make it go away quickly? Jesus says, don't let these things foster inside of you. These emotions lead to your anger, which leads to action, which means you and I end up breaking the sixth commandment, even when we aren't intending, at home, at church, in the marketplace. Check this out. The Left Behind video series. Their video game is coming out the last half of this year. You know, the left-behind books that have been so popular with apocalyptic conversation. Well, they have one coming out this fall that they have patterned after the very popular video game Grand Theft Auto. Now, in Grand Theft Auto, the goal is to steal as many cars and kill as many people and have sex with as many people as possible. You get points for all of that. In Left Behind, set in New York City, you get a chance to be on one of two teams. You can be on the Tribulation team. You can be on the, in the Antichrist community. You can even switch roles in the middle of the game and start shooting at the other people if you want. It is a combination of spiritual warfare and physical warfare all wrapped up in one. It's, it's God with a machine gun. As some headlines have said, commando God, Jesus loves weapons. Being marketed to mega Christian churches and they expect to make a killing. That just happened, by the way. Once in a while, the spirit does something. So if you're thinking of buying a video game, taking it home so you can have something Christian in your home for your children to be playing, be ever so careful. Really? Commando God? Really? Is that the Jesus from the New Testament? Really? You have to ask yourselves, if you're a Sixth Commandment person, I I better take seriously every image what I read and what I see that goes into my mind. We don't have to read another Columbine High report. Every year it comes out, five years after, now seven or eight years after, every report reads the same. What I see affects what I'm capable of doing. They're together. So if I'm going to be a Sixth Commandment person, I might need to watch in the marketplace what I put in my head. I might need to watch even Christian movies like The Passion of the Christ, which I still haven't seen. And I know many of you have seen it, and it's been very moving for a lot of Christians. They've had a profound, profound experience when they watch this film. I I can't get my mind around the bloody, violent creation in Mel Gibson's storytelling of this film. So, so I can't watch it because I'm not sure what it's going to do inside of me. 
I have to be careful if I'm going to be a Sixth Commandment person. All of these images and, and on into the public square. What do we do with capital punishment in our country? Is it okay with you that up until recently, not only is there corporal pu- capital punishment, but that we even put juveniles to death in our country? Is that okay with a follower of Jesus and a, a Sixth Commandment person when you clearly can see, moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament, Jesus won't even let them put an adult woman to death for an accusation? Would it be okay with me as a follower of Jesus that a 15, 16, 17-year-old could be sentenced to death in my country? It all begins to matter when I take the sixth commandment seriously. I need a holy interruption when I live in this world. The commandment is a call to live above all of it. Years ago, when we first moved to Loma Linda, and I uh, came to the campus of the university. I, I, saw, I saw my husband in his laboratory as a very young graduate student. This was quite an image and an experience for me because I really hadn't seen what goes on in, sci- in the real science world where sterile fields were created all over the laboratory and flasks and dishes and equipment and log books. And, and here was the specimen taped down on the counter. It was a white laboratory rat. And it's taped down. And there are two scientists, quote, poor rat didn't know this was the first experiment either of these guys had done. So the rat's all taped down on the counter. And it's the old kind of anesthesia where it's a syringe system where ether goes in one side and oxygen goes in the other and you monitor the respirations and then depending upon how it's doing, you give a little more ether or you back off. So somebody's monitoring the respirations and somebody else begins the work of whatever had to be done to this little lab rat. And as all good surgeons, they put on their headset, you know, and listen to music while this is also professional. I always imagined them listening to the soundtrack for Cats while they're working on this rat. Big guys, two big guys in white lab coats and the little chest going up and down. All of a sudden, just a flurry broke out in the lab. There was movement everywhere and equipment was coming and a lab coat came off and, and the syringe came out of the nose of this little, the rat crashed. The rat was not breathing. And, and you could see on these guys' faces, what, what do we do next? What do we do next? Well, you've got to start resuscitation. I thought maybe they're going to put it up to their mouth. They didn't. They take their little fingers, and I watched them, these two big six-foot-two guys on this little tiny white laboratory rat, going like this and monitoring the respirations. But they're not getting anywhere. They're not getting a heart rate. And so that's not enough. They, they realize there's an oxygen valve hooked up, you know, around the lab. So they take the rat and put it under the oxygen valve and just turn the valve on thinking and the chest of that rat like the Goodyear blimp blew up you know just shoom pops up oh that's too much so they pull it away from the oxygen they go back to the compressions long time these two big guys worked on this rat it was pronounced dead in the middle of all this creative scientific work what I will never forget And what I have permission to share with you is that I watched two grown men cry. And I thought, it's a rat, guys. It's not a pet. It's not an embryo. 
It's not your first patient at the medical center. It's a rat. It's at the bottom of a high. These are what I catch in my house with a trap. And they're over top of this rat crying. Now I hear the sixth commandment. They're a rat, just the rattiest of the bunch, the bottom of the hierarchy. That's why they're on death row. They're just a rat. Drug addicted, alcoholics. They live on the street. They're just they're on the bottom rung of society. You know, they're just they're just kind of ratty. Just a coworker I can't get along with, an ex-spouse that won't leave me alone, an in-law. They're just ratty. They're just these kids. If they would grow up, then they'll be adults and be human and I can interact to them. But now they're just on the bottom of the hierarchy. They're just a rat. All these people I see in the newspaper from other countries who don't have enough to eat and don't have places to sleep and don't they have Oprah and Bill Gates and won't they make it anyway, I think. And the fifth Sixth commandment says to me, wait a minute. Honor all life. I need a holy interruption when I begin to think that way, when I create hierarchies in my world and think because I live in the Western world or because we're educated or because what? That this life is more sacred than some other. I read my Bible carefully. This much I can see. In God's eyes, all life is sacred. So it matters. I'm the Lord your God. Brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So please never, never, never murder. Thank you, God, for being our God who brings us out of the land of Egypt, who brings us from a life of bondage into something beautiful. May we honor the life you give us. May we lift it up in everyone else we see through the power of your spirit and with the example of Jesus Christ. This is my prayer.